Looks like we're at time, so we'll go ahead and get started. Plus, it's quiet, so it seems like everyone's waiting for me to start talking, so I'll just start talking then. All right, so this morning we're going to be picking up in Obadiah. Last week we had finished off Amos. We had seen how Israel is reduced down to one, that is Christ, and he is the one who had endured all of these sufferings, this destruction of him in order that they may be planted on a land that they will never again be uprooted from. So now we got to really shift our minds into a different time frame here with Obadiah. We'll look at kind of the timeline of when things are going on, when this is being written, and that will kind of help frame our way of thinking through this book. And then since Obadiah is only 21 verses long, we'll probably get through that. And then we're going to skip over Jonah not that we don't love Jonah, but again, we're not going to be going through all the minor prophets. And so I commend you guys to read Jonah if you haven't or if it's been a little while. But go ahead and do that. And then we're going to skip that, though, and go into Micah. Before any of that, we'll begin with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so on the introductory material for Obadiah, Last week, we had read through some of what Luther had to say about it. But if you weren't here, I'd commend you guys to read that. He has some marvelous stuff to say there. But then that introductory part of reading Obadiah, go ahead and read that real quick. From the safety of a ruddy bluff, he surveys the desert floor, awaiting opportunity. At a great distance, he sees a line of travelers marching southward, Wilting in the brutal summer heat, they have descended from the siege in Jerusalem, where Babylonian towers lifted warriors to the tops of the walls. As the walls came down, refugees poured forth. Though these refugees lacked provisions, they fled in any direction, a break in the line of soldiers allowed. The soaring eagles of Edom, likely black-bearded or griffin vultures, properly represented Edom's soldiers for the prophet Obadiah. Like vultures, the Edomites preyed upon the desperate Judeans who fled from Jerusalem. And even though the Edomites dwelt securely in their rocky kingdom, carved into the cliffs of Mount Seir, the Lord's judgment would reach them, and he would rule over them. So that'll put us in the proper framework here for Obadiah. And so you see in the timeline In 605, Nebuchadnezzar besieges Jerusalem, and then in 587, the temple is destroyed. And so in between 587 and 553 is when Obadiah is written, and so it's during the time of the captivity, time of the deep distress of the people of Israel here. And so he's writing, it's going to be speaking of the overthrowing of Edom, this wicked nation who sat there and watched as Jerusalem was being besieged. And even Edom is inculcated into this, and they're seen as guilty participants even in this besieging of Israel here. We see a playthrough of this in 2 Kings with Nebuchadnezzar besieging Jerusalem, 2 Kings 25. If you want to read through that later on, it kind of gives a framework, gives a little bit of account of what is going on, the great atrocities for the people of Jerusalem here. And so with that, then, we'll turn the page and onto 1474, under the heading of the blessings for readers. Little Obadiah, since he's only 21 verses long, would be easy to overlook. However, carefully consider how this short prophecy is emblematic for all the Old Testament prophetic books emphasizing the Lord's reign on behalf of his people, which he would extend to other nations. This theme anticipated the coming of Jesus, whose merciful rule creates the church, which now encircles the globe. So we saw this even with Amos, the same type of theme being carried out. 
of how the Lord is reigning on behalf of his people, even though his people have turned wicked. The Lord is still reigning over them, reigning over the other wicked and pagan nations around him or around them there. And that's, that wickedness extends to those other nations. But then all that is framed within the anticipation of the coming of the Messiah here. So we saw that little bit of gospel peek out at the end of Amos in the midst of all the judgment, destruction, fire, and everything. There is the prophet or the prophecy of the coming Messiah and that faithful remnant from whom the Messiah would come. And so we'll see those same type of promises here in Obadiah, though it's going to be a little more hidden here. Are there any questions on the introductory or any of the history behind it before we hop into the text? Is he writing from the perspective of being in Israel and seeing what happens to Israel Mm -hmm. itself, not in Babylon? I would, I would venture to guess yes is what I'm thinking of. Concerning Edom, yeah, yeah, I would think so. All right, verse one. The vision of Obadiah. So again, we have this vision coming from the Lord to Obadiah. Same as with Amos, when he saw these images, he saw these, was it five visions that he had of the plumb line and the basket of fruit and all those things. And so these visions from the Lord to Obadiah. So that's just kind of the introduction here. Moving into the second half of verse 1. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. And so Edom, descendants of Esau, Jacob, or Israel, descendants of Jacob. And so that's, he's going to be really playing on that long-standing feud, that division amongst the brothers that then is brought all the way down into this present day when Obadiah is writing this here. And so concerning Edom, that is, descendants of Esau, we have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. And so this messenger isn't Obadiah. This isn't who he's speaking of. This is just a, an unidentified messenger. Now, this report has come, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. And the message of that messenger is rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Against her, that is, against Edom. So we're going to be rising up against Edom for all of their wickedness. Verse 2, Behold, I will make you small among the nations. Again, speaking to Edom here. I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. In the manuscript note, or behold, I have made you small among the nations, you are utterly despised. And so whether or not it's kind of a present or a future tense here, the Hebrew is really flexible in that. Of There's not so much as tenses, as just kind of different aspects, and one tense can do a bunch of different things. So it's a little more fluid than English here. And so whether or not it's more of a future or a present I'd argue probably a little bit of both. They are utterly despised amongst nations, especially Israel. They're despising Edom, even from the very beginning with Jacob and Esau. And they will be utterly despised in the future as well. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You will live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? So the nation of Edom is very prideful during this time. They're kind of in the clefts of the rocks, so they're on these mountaintops, kind of up hidden there of who could destroy us. We're, again, we're doing just fine. Have we heard that theme pop up before with Israel and the other pagan nations? And what did the Lord promise in Amos? But destruction, fire, hellfire and brimstones. And we'll get a bit more of that here in Obadiah. So the pride of your hearts, they're sitting in their lofty dwellings. Who will bring me down to the ground? The Lord's going to have an answer for them here in just a moment. 
Though you soar aloft like the eagle, remember the introductory, it could be these vultures, these bearded, ugly, wicked vultures here. Though they soar aloft up there, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. So this is the Lord himself speaking to Edom here through the mouth of Obadiah. But I will bring you down. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you would have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? And so the answer here is yes. You know, if a thief comes in the night, they're not going to steal everything in your house. They're going to go in, see what's most valuable, maybe take the TV, maybe take any loose cash sitting around. They're not going to be plundering everything, but just what they want, what's easy to get, and what satisfies their desire. But the Lord here, he's going to be continuing on. Let me finish off verse 5 to see how he carries on this argument. But if grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? So again, we see this in Ruth especially. You know, as they harvest, they would leave these gleanings. They wouldn't harvest 100% of everything. They would leave some stuff behind for the poor to come back through, the widows to come through to glean and have something for themselves to be fed and nourished. Again, they didn't have kind of the social security or welfare programs that we have today. That was the welfare program for the widows and all that. That was a means by which they could be taken care of through that gleaning. And so what he's getting at here is if thieves come and they steal only enough for themselves, Yes, they'd only steal enough for themselves. If grape gatherers came, would they not leave gleanings? They'd take most of things, but they'd still leave some behind. Well, I'm not going to do either of those things. I'm going to come, and I will utterly destroy you. I'm not going to come as a thief, only taking a little bit here or there. I'll come and destroy everything. I will gather everything from the harvesting field, is what he's getting at here. How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. So again, kind of, he's bouncing in between calling them Edom or Esau, Jacob or Israel. And so he's going to be bouncing back and forth throughout the book here. Again, highlighting just that feud and that strife and that division that's been going all throughout here. So how Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. So all the allies of Edom, they have turned against them. They have The allies have driven Edom to its very borders. Those who are at peace with them have then deceived them, lied to them, led them astray. And those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. So the very ones that you would sit at table with, share a meal with, your allies, your friends, your companions, those are the very ones setting a trap because you are now utterly despised by everyone here. And so this is getting at their destruction, where even their allies have turned against them. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? So the mountainous range, mountainous areas around Edom here, which again is kind of southeast, or mainly south of Judah, southern part of Judah, just west of Moab. And if you have your map, it's going to be kind of down over here in this general area in the mountainous range there. And so from there, he will destroy them. Verse 9, And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. So the study note on there for Timon, possibly a village in Edom, 
though the name might refer to Edom as a whole. We'll see this here in a few moments with Micah. There's going to be some places we just don't know. There's not any maps that we have to say this is exactly where it is or whatnot. But that's kind of the general guess. It's still going to be in the same area as Edom. They will be cut off by slaughter. On that cherry note, are there any questions or comments so far? Pretty straightforward to carry on the same themes that we've seen in Amos and any of the other minor prophets that you've read. Verse 10, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob. So again, recalling this brotherly bond that they have that has been broken. Because of the violence you have done to your brother Jacob, that is Israel, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, that is the wealth of Jacob, the wealth of Israel, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. And so this is the besieging of Israel, besieging of Jerusalem here. And so while all of this was going on, the brother, that is Edom, the brother of Jacob, the brother of Israel, stood aloof, stood by, watched all of this go on. And even at the end of verse 11, you were like one of them. And so you're even like those besieging your brother. You're just as guilty as they are for this wickedness that has come upon them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother Israel, or your brother that is Israel, in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. So the English word here, gloat, is actually the word for to see or to look. And so do not look over, do not look upon the day of your brother. Remember, they're in the mountaintops, they're standing aloof, watching all this. They're looking down, seeing all of this destruction going on, looking down on the day of their misfortune. And do not boast. Manuscript note says, do not enlarge your mouth, is the actual Hebrew here. So do not enlarge your mouth in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. So that is, do not go back and kind of pillage after all this destruction has gone on. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. We get just all these prohibitions against them of even what they have done already. They have entered the gate and they have gloated over the disaster of Israel. They have looted the wealth there. They have stood at the crossroads and cut off the fugitive fugitives. They have cut off those who are fleeing all of this destruction that was coming. Again, he's writing this to the people of Israel here. They're in this captivity, and he's writing, and these words would be words of comfort. Much like in Amos, before we got to the last oracle that was against Israel, it's kind of words of comfort to the people of Israel. Yeah, destruction's come upon those pagan nations, all those people that have, you know, looted us and done us wicked or done us evil. They're saying, yeah, great. Yes, Lord, destroy them. But then later on in Amos, he turns it back on the people of Israel. But again here, these would be words of comfort to them, of these, this promise of destruction to Edom, who has done all of these wicked things to the people of Israel. Verse 15, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations, that is, the day of judgment, not the promised last day, kind of a joyous day for us in the faith, but rather day of judgment or the day of destruction. 
As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. So here we get this theme that's going to be carrying out through the rest of the book of this reversal that's going on. Or what's done, what you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will be returned to you. And we'll see this reversal here in a moment as well. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. So this is not a drinking of joy, this great wine, but rather the cup of God's wrath here, the day of the Lord. They will drink and drink continually. And it shall be as though they had never been. It will be as though they had never even existed of this destruction that is coming. Verse 17 is a switch, though. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. So here we get the great words of comfort to the people of Israel. All this destruction that's coming, this drinking of the cup of wrath. But in Mount Zion, for those faithful survivors, the faithful remnant that the Lord has protected, they shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble, or another word for that is chaff. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. And so this fire, this destruction will come at the hand of Jacob, and the house of Esau will just be like this chaff, stuff that's just burned up, consumed at their hand. They shall burn them, consume them. There will be no survivors, which again is in stark contrast to verse 17 of this faithful remnant that will survive. So you, children of Israel, you, my people, there will be faithful survivors. I will protect you. And from there, Esau, the land of Edom, will be destroyed. So you will be saved. They will not be saved here. There will be no survivor. Those of the Negeb shall possess, or another word for inherit, Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. So again, all these just ideas of repossessing what was theirs. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negeb. Survivors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. So in verse 20 here, these exiles, this remnant, those who return out of exile, is those who will then possess the land of the Canaanites. As far as Zarephath and the exiles of Jerusalem shall possess the cities of Negeb here. And so again, this great promise to them that in the midst of this exile, this captivity that you are in, there will be a remnant that will survive. You will inherit this land and you will possess it. And then saviors, shall go up to Mount Zion. So these great saviors, in your study note on verse 21, Luther writes about this, and he says, he calls leaders saviors, as we find in the book of Judges, where he sent them many saviors, that is, leaders to lead them and take charge of them, to be in the lead if they ever had to fight with enemies. So here the apostles and other disciples are called saviors, men who by preaching that joyful gospel message have certainly freed them from all the assaults of Satan and from the gates of hell, 
men who have judged them in faith, who have ruled them with just judgment, and thus have prepared the eternal kingdom for the Lord. And so here he's speaking of these saviors that will come, are the the apostles and the disciples that are coming to this land, spreading this great news of the gospel to the people here. So these saviors shall go up, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. So again, even though earthly it may seem all is lost, you're lost in captivity, your end has come, the Lord will bring saviors, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. He is the ultimate victor here, and he has declared this, and so it shall be for you. And that's all of Obadiah. It's a pretty quick book, only 21 verses, and so are there any thoughts, questions on that? Anything that sticks out? The only thing I, I notice is poor Esau, his sins kept getting worse and worse and worse. Uh, and um, it, it goes back to what Jesus says, uh, only a fool in his heart says there is no God. And it seems very pleasant way of putting it because it can be worse. Mm-hmm. What was the first part of your statement? Sorry, I missed Jesus says, he says, you're only a fool in this heart, mm-hmm. says there's no God. And I said, mm-hmm. and he uses the word fool, and I think it's a real pleasant word at the way he's using it, because he could tell you where you're going. Because as you go live on, Esau gets worse. Mm-hmm. I mean, his hatred goes to his family and to his descendants, and they get worse and worse and worse mm-hmm. to what we see in Obadiah and what we see today. Mm-hmm. We see that at the close of the commandments of punishing to the third and fourth generation those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to a thousand who love me and keep my commandments. And so the chosen people of Israel, he's faithful to them. It also, when he's talking in the others in Jeremiah and Isaiah, it's always the sojourner. And he, he's also talking about in Deuteronomy, the sojourner in the Exodus. It's the, the remnant mm-hmm. that Paul always talks about are mm-hmm. the real Jews, not the ones that are born. It's mm-hmm. always the sojourners, as Jesus tells the Israels, that who you are. Mm-hmm. You'll see this especially in Micah with all the wicked rulers who are then held accountable for that, for that wickedness. Yeah. But all throughout there is that faithful remnant. That he will deliver, absolutely. Any other thoughts on Obadiah? Again, kind of an easy one to overlook, especially whenever you start getting to all these different names of the regions. You have no idea where they're at or what that's about. But there's still this faithful message and this great words of comfort. And all throughout still that promise of the kingdom is the Lord's. And he is in control. And from that, the birth of the Messiah will come. And salvation will come to the earth. So just because it's short, they're short books, don't overlook them. Just quickly read them. It means you can read through more even quickly. You don't get tired of reading all the way through the Psalms at once and you get all the way through hundred something. So it means you can read them over and over. So... All right, so like I'd said, we're going to skip over Jonah. Not that Jonah isn't great. Kind of the purpose of our quick sprint through the Minor Prophets is to hit on the ones that we likely haven't read or haven't really paid much attention to, hardly at all. Not that Jonah isn't great. You should read it. There's great words of comfort, great promises in there. I commend you to read it, but we're just going to forgo it here. And then we're going to move into Micah. Now we'll look at the introductory material again here, that first paragraph. One reclines on the grass, the other stands on a rock. The first lazily eats mutton and drinks wine. The other turns and watches the tree line at the edge of the field. The first snores, the other sees the lion coming. Micah called out against the leaders of Judah and Israel who indulged themselves. 
They did not see the problems that threatened their subjects, including the threat of exile for the daughters of Zion. Yet Micah also prophesied the coming of a faithful shepherd who would stand guard over his people and spring to their defense with the strength of a young lion. This ruler would come from a shepherd's town, Bethlehem, ascend to the tower of the flock, David's palace, and renew the kingdom. Micah's shepherd is Jesus. Moving on to Luther's comments, I'm going to just read the second and third paragraphs. Micah is one of the fine prophets who rebukes the people severely for their idolatry and constantly refers to the coming Christ and to his kingdom. In one respect, he is unique among the prophets in that he points with certainty to Bethlehem, naming it as the town where Christ was to be born. For this reason, he was famous under the Old Covenant, as Matthew certainly shows in chapter 2, verses 3 to 6. And then here's the key point for this introduction, that third paragraph of Luther. In short, he, that is Micah, denounces, he prophesies, he preaches, etc. Ultimately, however, his meaning is that even though Israel and Judah have to go to pieces, Christ will yet come and make all things good. So, too, we now have to rebuke, denounce, comfort, and preach, etc. And then say, even though all be lost, Christ will come, will yet come at the last day and help us out of all misfortune. It's great words of comfort and a call to us and to call to faithful pastors here to continue to rebuke, denounce, comfort, and preach, even in the midst of the world seeming as though it's all but lost. Even though it may be, Christ will come again on the last day. There is that certainty and that promise that we have for for the sake of what Christ has done for us. That he will come and help us out of all misfortune. What a great, great comfort that is. And so Micah is going to be taking place during the, he's going to be prophesying during the time kind of Isaiah and Hosea during Hezekiah, but he works a little bit later, but still in the same general time frame. And Amos would have been before these during the reign of Jeroboam II that we saw in Amos chapter 1. So at the same time of kind of Isaiah and these great prophets here is when he's going to be writing this. And Micah, especially chapter 1, is just incredibly difficult to interpret some of what he has to say here. And so there may be times where I don't know the answer. I may defer to pastor. He may not know the answer. And then it's just a big question mark. But it's still worthy to go through. And hopefully we can still glean something from it, even if we can't understand exactly what he's saying all the time here. But I think before we begin that, his the study note for the end of chapter 1 is kind of a good summary and a good frame of reference as we go into chapter 1 that's kind of difficult. And so they write, The Lord acts as the witness for the prosecution and the case against his sinful people, represented by their capital cities, Samaria and Jerusalem. His coming is marked by dramatic signs in the creation, reminding us of what will happen on the last day. All the earth needs to take note of what happened to Jerusalem and Judah. Our sinful actions are also witnessed by God and deserve wrathful punishment. God has shown the depth of his justice in Christ Jesus, who in love took on himself God's just wrath, so that we may stand holy and righteous before him. And so we'll see this this imagery of the courtroom and the Lord bearing witness here in chapter 1. And hopefully we can make some sense out of these things that Micah is writing. Are there any thoughts on the introductory material before we hop into the text? All right. Chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. <coughs> Excuse me. 
And so here again, we see the word of the Lord. This is not Micah's word. It wasn't Amos's word that he was speaking to them. This is the word of the Lord. And this is what, that which he saw. So again, this imagery of, or these visions that come to him. And so Micah's hometown is Moresheth. And then we get the time frame of the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Then in verse 2, Hear you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. So again, he has these words to call out to hear. Listen, you peoples, all of you. Not just people of Israel, not just these other nations, but all nations. All nations hear these words that he has to say. Pay attention, all, O earth, and all that is in it. And then let the Lord God be a witness. <clears throat> so we have, again, the Lord being this witness in this courtroom. So he's bringing this case, and the defendants are all the earth. All of these nations are the defendants in this case, and the Lord is going to be laying out his case here throughout chapter 1. Chapter, yeah, chapter 1, verse 3. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. So the Lord is coming out of his place, that is his heavenly temple. He's coming out from there and coming down as well. So he's coming out from his temple, but coming down from heaven. And the language of treading upon the high places of the earth, it's military language going on. The Lord is going to come in great might, and he will lay waste to all these nations here. And the mountains will melt under him. So at his coming down and his treading upon these high places, in response, creation itself will, the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. So here's the reaction of creation itself to the coming of the Lord. In symmetry of wax, in the uh, commentators, on the Concordia commentary, his commentary is a little harder to understand and comprehend, much like Micah's a little difficult, so I'll probably give him a break since he's working with a hard book here. But he points out that there's a few images of wax, or a few times it comes up in Scripture. And first I was kind of ho-humming it, but then looking through the different Passages. I thought it may be worthy for us to go on a little bit of a field trip here, especially it pops up in the Psalms. So we'll turn to Psalm 22. Again, keep in mind the wax melting before the fire and waters pouring down a steep place. So again, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're in this context. Then in verse, back up a little bit into verse 12 of chapter 22. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. So we have these words that Christ himself is proclaiming on the cross during crucifixion. And he's saying, I am poured out like water. So these same words that we see in Micah 1. And my heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. And so the reaction of creation to the coming down of the Lord in judgment. 
is the very words that Christ is speaking when he is experiencing the full judgment of God, his full wrath on behalf of us. Is this melting like wax and this pouring out like water. We see this also in Psalm 68 and 97. Same imagery, we won't hit on those, but if you're interested, there is some fun stuff to see. And those are the only occurrences that I see of this wax, which I would have thought it would have appeared a lot more frequently. It seems like it would have. But here we get these images, images, especially as it applies to Christ for us. We're returning to Micah 1. Actually, I'll pause there. Are there any before we move on? No one just switch subjects without living the break? Okay. So that is the rea- reaction of creation <clears throat> to the Lord's coming. The tread upon the high places. Mountains will melt like wax and be poured out down a steep place. All of this. And so this is the reason for the judgment. This melting of the mountains and everything. All this is for the transgression of Jacob. And for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? So that is the kingdom of the north. Is it not Samaria? As the peak, what kind of the best Jerusalem has, or Jacob has to offer here? So I don't know, equivalent to in the U.S. would be the best thing we have, best place we have to offer. Thing, city we're most proud of. I don't know if too many we'd be too proud of nowadays. But anyways, what is the transgression? Is it not Samaria? And so what is that great transgression, that great stain upon the land of Jacob? It's Samaria. It's your best city, your pride and joy. That's a stain upon you. And the word for what, I don't know. I mean, it makes sense why they translate it as what. But really the word used here is the word for who. So in the Hebrew, there's, it's a pain to learn, especially when we first started out. But the word for who is pronounced me, and the word for he is who, and the word for she is he, and the word for dog is fish. And so you can't make sense of any of it, you can't memorize it, but you just have to. And so the word used here is who. So who is the transgression of Jacob? And so the commentator, he makes a point of saying specifically of who, because he's going to be calling out these leaders of these nations. And so they are responsible for this. They should have known better, but they're sitting around enjoying themselves while all their nations below them are crumbling. And so he argues that we should translate it as who and understand it kind of as these rulers in these great cities of Samaria and who is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Is it not the leaders there? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. And I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. So the words of judgment against Samaria here make them just a heap in the open country, just a worthless pile and make them a place for planting vineyards, you know, pour down her stones into the valley, just this destruction that is coming. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire and all her idols I will lay waste. Here we get difficult interpretation. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. And so we saw this in Amos some with the imagery of adultery in terms of temple worship and how the Lord was greatly offended that they would commit adultery against the Lord. And so here you'd have these temple prostitutes that are going about 
and from the fee she gathered them, that is, these idols, these carved images that are going to be beaten to pieces, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. So these, all these idols are going to be decimated. They'll just be returned as broken pieces. They'll be laid to waste. So again, it's kind of a weird interpretation, or weird statement by him, and it's hard to kind of fully make sense of. That's my best guess, or my best stab at it. We kind of get the sense of this sin, it leading to sin and death. So from the fee, she gathered them, and to the fee, they shall return. So dust you are, and to dust you shall return. That same type of imagery here, but just in a little more colorful fashion. Um. Could you, it, it seems like or could be interpreted like the way I think it says your transaction against Samaria because isn't Samaria and Dan is where when they divided up the north and the southern kingdom the north and Samaria and Dan is where they put the golden calf so they could worship there so mm-hmm. this is almost saying like hey you're worshiping at this evil sight in Samaria and you think it's so great because mm-hmm. you have this golden calf and you're now you're prostituting yourself all there so it's just pure wickedness mm-hmm. it's like our great San Francisco is now a dump I haven't had the pleasure of venturing up there but I will f- during the time of Thanksgiving so we'll see how that goes it used to be the Paris mm-hmm Tell me if my brain is going too wild. Okay. I see this passage here about the prostitute. Isn't this so interesting? Of this woman at the well in Samaria Mm. and the water image and everything. Um, But the other thing, the water, Christ is talking about, I have living water. Mm -hmm. And pouring out like water. It's both, can I say, it's both God's wrath because without water we die. And but we die in Christ in baptism, and we are raised to life. Is that going too far afield? I don't know if that would quite be the image that he's bringing to mind here. I mean, some some people are of the frame of mind of any time there is water in Scripture, especially the Old Testament, it's automatically looking forward to baptism, okay. and so they'll read into it there. I don't know if that's quite what he's pointing at. Because I think the view of this this prostitution is just this complete wickedness that's coming. I don't know. Do you have any other thoughts, Pastor, on that? Or well, I like what you said, Paula, just independent of the text. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think I think um, when you let's see, so probably cult prostitution, mm-hmm. right? So they're so they're soliciting the the men and um, this would be like Baal storm God impregnating the earth and so reenactments of that and mm-hmm. then the fees that the offerings that are given are buying these really impressive idols and this kind of perverse beauty and so it's it's a nasty transaction and then um, where did else did I see this oh yeah I mean, so some of the language is really suggestive here, too. Let me see if I can see what it is. Okay, maybe not so much that I will pour down her stones in six, but isn't it a strange expression? It wouldn't surprise me if there's more there. But then especially uncover her foundations. Mm-hmm. That's the language of uncovering nakedness, of bringing someone like... If a woman has uh, fallen into shame, the revenge of that is to shame her by uncovering her nakedness. And so it's like a violent act of shaming that which is shameful, kind of the tit for tat. And that's probably what's in view in 7 too, where you've got this sort of from the fee of a prostitute, she gathered these beautiful idols to the fee of a prostitute, they shall return. So God enacting this uh, sort of violence against and shaming this shameful woman, thus the sh- um, yeah, thus the she of the city. Um, in at the toward the end of seven, 
for from the free, uh, fee of a prostitute she gathered them. Who's the she? The city. It would seem. So you've got all this. You've got all this. Like I mean, it's very uncomfortable. It's very violent. It's very like mm-hmm. if you act shamefully, you get shamed. Kind of Middle Eastern mentality there. But I think that's kind of what's going on. Now, with the woman at the well, you don't have prostitution per se. You've got like serial monogamy <laughs> or something, right? <laughs> how, many, how many husbands yeah. have you had, right? Yes, and the one who you're with now is not your husband, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, many heads help the understanding of Micah chapter 1 especially. Any other thoughts on that section? <clears throat> All right. So let's see. Where do we leave off? Verse 8? We're down to 10 already? Oh, no, no, no. Sorry. <laughs> I agree. You were reading 8. I think we were to 9. Oh, yeah, I haven't. Okay, so verse 8. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. Don't know what kind of mourning ostriches make, but... Could be owls. Oh, yeah. 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 (laughs) So again, interesting imagery here. But for this, I, that is Micah here, maybe through the mouth of the Lord, but still Micah, it seems, is speaking here. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. And so don't we see this also with Christ? Remember on Palm Sunday, he's riding in to Jerusalem on the donkey, and he mourns, he weeps over Jerusalem. And then as he goes to the cross, he goes stripped and naked to the cross. So this imagery of mourning over this nation, over her destruction... It will come. And he will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. I guess if you really want to know what noises they make, you can Google it later. And I'm sure there's YouTube videos of the lamentation of jackals, if you want. Verse 9, for her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. And so this all previously is the sin of Samaria here. And so that sin, that incurable wound, so again, incurable, there's no hope here. And it has come to Judah and has reached the gate of my people to Jerusalem. So sin there has infected all the way down to his people in Jerusalem here. It's reached their very gates Again, we have the line here of my people. So we get this great promise even embedded here of all this sin is coming, but they are my people. And these great words of comfort, even though the rulers of Jerusalem and everything, they are fallen wicked, he's still, they're still his people. Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. In Bethlehem, Roll yourselves in the dust. And so Bethlehem literally translates to house of dust. And so roll yourselves in the dust or roll yourself in kind of ashes, this state of mourning here. You stay note on for verses 10 through 16, makes a point that I made earlier of we don't know the precise locations of a lot of these places, so... If you ask me where it's at on a map, I'll say your guess is as good as mine. We'll throw a dart and maybe we'll be right or maybe not. Verse 11, pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir, that is beautiful city, is its Hebrew translation here. So pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir, in nakedness and shame. So these inhabitants of beautiful city are then... They're in nakedness and shame. So here in verse 11, we have the opposite of what they're supposed to be. So this beautiful city is now shameful. It's ugly to look at. It's not pleasing 
the inhabitants of Zainan, Zainan, however you want to pronounce that, do not come out. The lamentation of Bethazel shall take away from you its standing place. So they are coming out, the Sana, I can't remember the Hebrew word there, but the inhabitants of the coming out do not come out. Lamentation of Bethazel, take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Marath, probably from that word Mara, bitter, we saw that in Amos, we see that in Ruth with Naomi. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, the bitterness that she has experienced. Wait anxiously for good. So the inhabitants of bitter. Wait anxiously for good, because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. <clears throat> then he switches gears and speaks of another place here in verse 13. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. It's my best guess at how to pronounce that. And so here these... in. The Concordia commentary, it's speaking of that this place, Lachish, or however you want to pronounce it, <clears throat> would have been a, probably is likely a, of strategic military importance. So they would have had great military power here. So he's getting out to the point of, hey, Lachish, you know, inhabitants of there, harness your steeds to the chariots, get ready for battle if you think that's going to save you. Again, if you want to trust in your military, because you're great and powerful military, if you want to trust in that, harness your steeds, get ready your chariots, and we'll see what happens. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. And so this relying on military might to be saved, it was the beginning of sin to the daughter of of Zion, for in that the transgressions of Israel were found. Verse 14, we may have a few minutes to finish this chapter up. <clears throat> Therefore you shall give parting gifts, your manuscript notes, or give a dowry to Morasheth Goth. The houses of Akzib shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. So we have this, as you give a dowry, you know, your daughter is going to be leaving your household. You know, as you hand off your daughter, daughter's hand in marriage here. So this parting of one's daughter. I will bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Marashah. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair. We saw that in Amos, this state of mourning, you would shave your head. They are mourning for the children of your delight. So the very children that you delight in, your pride and your joy, mourn for them. Shave your head because this is what their future is going to be. This is the destruction that's going to come. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. So that language we had of the dowry, this parting of one's daughter, this parting of the offspring, here we get that imagery with, they shall go from you into exile. So they shall part from you. Your children will go into exile. Mourn for them. Shave your head. This is coming here. I mean, these are really cheerful endings to these classes. Man. Aren't you guys just happy and joyful right after this? Oh. Don't worry, it may get better. We'll see. We'll see how Micah goes. See if he's a little more cheerful than Amos. But are there any thoughts or questions? Yeah. Just, uh, so far, it seems like the reason for all this is Yeah, I mean, all of it is still... I mean, ultimately deriving from a denial of the Lord, the parting of his people. And that takes on many different forms of 
the idols or trusting in your military might as they did. So yeah, it takes on many different forms. We'll see how he develops that as we go on in Micah here. But I think we got the worst of the chapters over with. So it should get better and a little bit easier to understand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they took the women who collaborated with the Germans, you know, like, mm-hmm. has, he had pictures of them, and made them shave their head and walk through the streets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, in contrast to, we were recently in Las Vegas because of Mellow's Air Force Base, mm-hmm. and I heard that there are women walk around with basically nothing on. No, oh, jeez. In, in the strip. Yeah. What has happened to our culture? Exactly. Again, still on that cheerful note, the Lord be with you.